Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. <laughs> it is morning. <laughs> it is morning. I can't believe we're recording in the morning. This is <laughs> this is interesting. Really, really gets you going. <laughs> Seriously, I've got my coffee because so help me. I <laughs> yes, I yeah. It's gonna be a good episode, but <laughs> it might take a little more effort to get through this one. <laughs> if you made poor decisions last night and you know it, clap your hands. <laughs> I hope that was in time. I'm sure it wasn't. It wasn't. No, it's fine. <laughs> well, you know, this is this is 30 something, okay? Yeah, this is um, but we agreed to but, it, so here we are. Yeah, we're dedicated to the show. And I'm excited about what we're talking about today. I am too. Um so this episode, we're talking about the Kentucky Derby. The Kentucky Derby um, is in May, so it's coming up here pretty quick. And why not uh, honor and bring some recognition to um, the African-Americans that really were the uh, the first jockeys to um, to bring on the Derby and um, really make headway and kind of learn about their journey. So the first Derby day... Um, Popular writer Oliver Lewis rode H.P. McGrath's Thoroughbreds Aristides or Thoroughbred Aristides to victory in the first Kentucky Derby on May 17, 1875 at the Louisville Jockey Club. 13 of the 15 jockeys in the Derby, including Lewis, were African-Americans. The Kentucky Derby was begun by Meriwether Lewis Clark, a prominent Louisville citizen who developed the Louisville Jockey Club. Clark began construction on the race course in 1874 on land leased from two relatives, John and Henry Churchill. He patterned the Kentucky Derby after the English classic, the Epsom Derby. The Derby now runs annually the first Saturday in May at Churchill Downs in the oldest consecutively held thoroughbred horse race in the United States. The Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes comprise the coveted triple crown of U.S. horse racing. In 1773, the College of William and Mary sponsored a survey of the area that eventually became Louisville, um, that eventually became Louisville site of the Kentucky Derby. George Rogers Clark settled there in 1778, and the town named for Louisville the wait for Louis the 16th XVI. 16th. For Louis the 16th of France was organized in 1779. By the early 1800s, Louisville became a major port serving both Midwest and the South. During the Civil War, it was a key supply depot for Union troops. Every May, Louisville hosts the Kentucky Derby and the acclaimed horse show at the, at the Kentucky State Fair. Another part of the Kentucky Derby Festival is a steamboat race on the Ohio River between Louisville and Jefferson, Indiana. Now, that is so, there's so many different layers in that description that I think could get their own historical overviews. But the part that's obviously most interesting to us is that most of the jockeys, at least in the beginning of the Kentucky Derby, were Black people. Um, and this was new information to me. And honestly, I mean, we'll start off with one of our first questions. Um, what is your relationship with the Kentucky Derby? Oh, we're doing questions out the bat. Okay. Oh, yeah. We're going to start here. We're going to start oh, here. <laughs> I don't really have a relationship with the Kentucky Derby. Like, I recognize it. Um, until I've been invited to a friend of mine. Um, they've had like a party every year. Um, and so I've gone to their place and just kind of been there. Um, I know that people usually wear the hats and the nice dresses and, you know, that kind of thing. Like that definitely comes to mind. Um, people betting on horses and uh, betting on the races, but I have no real uh, relationship with the Kentucky Derby necessarily. Um, and just kind of, is something that, you know, wasn't really in my life. Same here. I honestly, I found out, I feel like I learned a lot about what I'll call white culture, which is not an appropriate mm -hmm. term, but I found out a lot about these things that honestly, black people have just kind of been boxed out of um, through working in the beer industry, which is so 
I'm going to say it again, white culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, there's baseball and there's shooting deer and drinking beer. And then there's Kentucky Derby and that's part of it. And there's the big hats and there's the mint juleps and there's the gambling mm-hmm. and there's the, the, um, the highfalutin, you know, like mm-hmm. big money thing. And none of that ever signaled black to me. Yeah. And so when I started to figure out or learn some of the history about the Kentucky Derby, it was really interesting me to me that we were part of the very beginning. Right. Now, obviously, it's not as uh, romantic. It's not like, oh, I just wanted to race horses and I got to race horses. Um, a lot of those uh, first jockeys for the first several years um, were enslaved people who were riding and kind of riding for a sense of freedom. Like they did not really they obviously didn't get freedom even if they won um but they got some some liberties along with being an an athlete that did a great job for the public so i actually have a question or clarification for you though if like the end of the enslavement period in 1865 um how were were these previously enslaved people that um kind of continued essentially in that in that realm because they didn't have a choice yeah, it was like this is how they could make their living by working in, in the stables. Um, but working meant what? <laughs> like it right. meant slavery. Yeah. So that's hard. Not officially, um, but it's there. Right. 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 So it's it's so it's so depressing to even think about that because here we are supposedly in like a reconstruction period, right? And there's the ability to be a stable hand and like go and and be an equestrian of sorts. But really, if you're looking at it, but for what it is, it's you're, you're enslaved and Mm -hmm. there's not really a way out of it for you. Um, But they did at least had the games, but, um, and this whole thing came up, not just because May is when the Kentucky Derby happens, but it's because of an event that happened to me, an event, I'm calling it an event, how dramatic, um, an experience <laughs> that I had um, just casually driving to meet a friend at a bar. Um, there was a house that was along the road that had a statue that was chained to their garage with security cameras around it. Um, and it was what I consider just a blackface statue. I'll have to send you the picture that I took. Mm. Um, and it was really jarring. And I I took a picture and I posted it on social media. uh, And through that, some people were like, oh, that's called a lawn jockey. And I then found out about the Black history of the Kentucky Derby through this. So we'll talk about the lawn jockey in a minute. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the beginning of the um, Kentucky Derby. So the first winner was Oliver Lewis, who was a 19-year-old native Kentuckian. um, And he... Uh, he won the very beginning, which to me is also crazy. I remember learning about like hor- there was like a boom in horses when I was young in the early 90s. You remember this? It was like Black Beauty and the Horse Whisperer and um, Seabiscuit came along like all oh, these yeah. stories of jockeys. None of them were black. And so much of the the popular history of jockeys and what we consider to be the sport of uh, equestrians, right? The riding sport was based on the history that was laid out by young black men. And they are not in these stories at all. And it is interesting because it's, you know, we talk about um, even our last uh, podcast episode with Cameron um, talking about the music industry, right? Like we have really paved the way in terms of different genres and now we don't associate certain genres with black people. So if you think about like country or rock or, um, you know, heavy metal kind of like those and like the things that get influenced by us, um, we don't have that same presence in those genres um, or maybe association with those genres as we did previously for whatever reason. But I think the story right. of James Wingfield's um, 
who also won races in the Kentucky Derby is going to be telling and a little bit of insight into what that, what that looks like and how it happens. Um, mm-hmm. so James Wingfield, uh, he won the Kentucky Derby in 1901. And then in 1902, in 1904, he decided to leave for Europe. Um, he, there he met John Madden, who was an incredible trainer, um, saying that he would ride for him. And, um, then eventually he kind of took it back. He reneged on what he promised. And, um, then he basically was made to be an outcast in the community in the riding community with most trainers, not taking him on. He then went on to ride, uh, to race for an, an Armenian oil, an Armenian oil man named Mikhail, Mikhail. I think it's Mikhail Lazarev. Um, together, they won dozens of major races in Poland and Russia where racing was booming. In the U.S., the boom had kind of settled. Um, racism was more outward. Anti-gambling sentiments and financial problems closed 250 tracks across the U.S., which is mm-hmm. why Winfield, um, why Wingfield decided to go elsewhere. Then... The Russian Revolution hit, and he was able to escape as part of a large caravan that fled on um, that fled on foot from Odessa to Warsaw, a one thousand mile journey. He landed in France and reestablished his fame as the best writer in that country until he retired in 1930. Somehow, it was as if he were safe from the evils of racism in France. Um, but then after retirement, he became a trainer and set up shop in Maison Lafitte. Someone's going to correct me on the correct pronunciation of that. Um, that's my best French, knowing English and Spanish. Okay. <laughs> but wait, so it didn't end there. <laughs> Nazis done came to France, uh, forcing Wingfield mm. back to the U.S. where reality hit. No one remembered him, and Black people weren't racing anymore. In the racing world, essentially all he could be was a stable hand or a groomer. Then he went back to France along with his son Robert and reestablished his stable. In 1961, the Kentucky Derby honored him and rekindled his story. The kicker, though... At first, he was denied entry to the event due to the color of his skin at Brown Hotel for a banquet. And I'm not sure if like the name of the hotel is ironic considering the circumstances, Mm. but anyhow, so they let him in, but he was treated awfully the whole time. In 1974, Wingfield passed at the ripe old age of 93 in Maison Lafitte, France. 1974. Oh my God. We are still, we are in the history. Like 1974 isn't long enough ago for me. Mm-mm. It's not even oh, 50 gosh. years, not quite 50 years ago. That's, it's just insane. But that is, that is a tale as old as time. Um, also, so many horrific world events happening in the middle of that. On top of your identity being attacked at every mm-hmm. single turn. Oh, gosh, the things that these, that these our ancestors had to go through just to be just to be able to play a sport or be able to uh, have a skill that is, you know, admired, you have to run. And there's also an interesting thing, the, the black flight to France, like I know that James Baldwin did that too, you know, like Baker. I mean, there's the list goes on. Yeah. I do, maybe that's a different episode where we can learn more about what the differences between uh, Europe, European Black life versus American Black life is. I know that for queer people, a lot of the times it was for safety and freedom there, mm-hmm. but um, it's just interesting and sad that people had to flee so hard when they were already winners right here. Exactly. But it's really telling about, um, you know, what that experience was like. Again, 15 of the first 28 derbies were won by black riders. And Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you can't you can't deny that history and how they had such a big impact on the sport. Um, But then in 1904, that's when black riders were banned from racetrack. So they really didn't have, um, you know, much of a choice. And so. I mean, it sounds like there was some workaround. I don't have the exact details on that because there's a note from 1921 to 2000 that no Mm -hmm. African-American writers were in the Derby until uh, Marlon St. Julian, who re-entered basically and, and, um, 
you know, reestablish a presence of black writers in the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still, I mean, that's 79 years of no association of, you know, or sort of continuing that legacy of black writers in the sport who uh, really took it off. And um, at this point, that's why we don't have an understanding of what, mm-hmm. you know, our presence was and, um, or maybe have a, and a connection to the sport. I love horses. Like I think they're beautiful and magnificent, but horse racing was never something that I was introduced to. Yeah. It's because of that long, <laughs> that long time of black people being separated from the sport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think I saw a quote, but I need to, uh, to double check. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that St. Julian also said that he didn't know about the history of black writers. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it said that St. Julian who admitted during an interview a few years ago, I need to double check what year this was, uh, that he didn't know the history of black jockeys and started reading up on it. Uh, recently, um, he reached out and, uh, he said, I hope to be a, a role model as a writer for anyone who wants to race. So mm-hmm. unfortunately he had to start from scratch because our history had been erased, but, um, that, that is again, a tale as old as time, a tale as old as time. Now, are you thinking that with this knowledge, you're going to engage with the Kentucky Derby in a different way at all? know if I will, but, um, I mean, Gray loves horses. Like he enjoyed riding when uh, my in-laws were down a couple months ago and, um, he enjoys, you know, getting to be on, on them. And so if that were something that he wanted to pursue, um, Kentucky Derby aside, like, you know, I, I'm open to him doing that, um, and riding with him like that. I think that would be fun. But, um, I don't know, maybe I'll tune into the Derby uh, coming up this year, um, out, you know, party aside, but, um, maybe I'll tune in and, um, like, you know, it'd be nice to get dressed up and have a nice little hat or something like that. Like I'm all for it. Yeah. You know, I love a costume and a theme and I feel like (laughs) I also, after just learning a little bit about this, there's so much that we don't know, but I think there's a little bit of reclamation that I'm interested in engaging with. Like I really want to be a part of it um, in my own way. Um, And I would love to see if maybe there's some, some writers of color, some jockeys of color that are able to be in there. If not black people, just something Um, because in my mind, the Kentucky Derby is so white and it's so exclusion. Like it's just going to be white. And I hope that, in 2023 it's looking a little different um i don't have high hopes for kentucky unfortunately shout out to kentucky i'm sure y'all are great <laughs> i do not have high hopes you know there's that but i also want to um move to the lawn jockey because as i mentioned this was a jarring experience seeing this this figure in someone's lawn um it's of a young black boy in blackface you know the red lips the black skin um wearing a jockey's outfit so like the riding pants and the little jacket you know um and his his right arm is outstretched to hold a lantern for the lawn and it was um seeing it in person was just shocking. And the way that they had it displayed with the camera guarding it and chained to the, to the, uh, garage, it made me, it, it it filled in some gaps. It was like, okay, so people have talked to you about this and you are, you are putting this out there to be defiant to whatever Mm. people have brought up towards, towards that statue or to you. And, um, Another thing that's a little bit heartbreaking about it is that this family, they are white people. Um, their grandchildren are mixed kids mm-hmm. that ha- that come over and play basketball next to the statue. Yeah. So that's another thing. But I started to get into the research about the jockey because I was like, maybe I'm maybe I'm missing something. Like, obviously, the imagery is straight up racist, but maybe I'm missing some sort of significance that could be saving it. I'll have you all know, spoiler alert, no, still doesn't work and they shouldn't have it on their lawn. But um, the lawn jockey actually comes from what is now considered a myth 
Um, it is a statue of an enslaved person, a slave child, whose name was Jocko Graves. Um, and the legend holds that the conductors of the Underground Railroad used these lawn jockey statues to help guide people to freedom. Um, and this is a debated thing. Um, they were saying that uh, the original Jocko Graves story was that he was, um, you know, a young African-American boy who served George Washington during the uh, Revolutionary War. And as Washington planned to cross the Delaware into Trenton, New Jersey, um, he told Jocko to keep the light up and just wait for them to come back. Um, and apparently he did as he was told and he froze to death. So that's where the lawn jockey statue originates from, in the position of where the kid oh allegedly died. Right. <laughs> so in a way, um, the conversation turns into conversations about respectability, mm. what's expected of Black people in the South. And the thing is that there isn't, there's there's documentation that a child died in his name or he was called Jocko, Jocko Graves. That is true. But whether or not this story actually happened is hotly debated because there's no documentation of that. Also, the Underground Railroad uh, signifier, um, some of the suggestions are that the statue would be on the lawns of houses that were safe and they would put a green ribbon on the lawn, the, the lantern hanger to say it's okay to come in right now in a red ribbon to say it's not safe around here, which that code is, is paper thin. Um, so a lot of people are like, maybe that's not true. And also there's no, there's no documentation of that in any of the biographies or autobiographies of enslaved people from the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so this code and this story and the statue have all this history attached to it. However, there's no confirmation. And so a lot of people are thinking that this is part of the myth-making of the South to kind of reclaim their uh, their stories uh, after losing the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Like they're just... They're just trying to rewrite some things to say, like, we we have these honorable Black people, and this is what Black people should be doing. And they have these statues built. We've seen it in parks, you know, where people became heroes suddenly. All of this retelling of history, all of this myth-making was to help advance this, these lies um, about experiences during slavery times in the South. Um, and so that's kind of where the conversation is right now around the lawn jockey. Um, but I will say something that did happen was that people brought up that, you know, this is, this is just racist. Like we don't need to do this. So the companies that produced them and they are still produced today, um, they switched it from the Jocko Graves character, the blackface character to a young white boy. So now you may see lawn jockeys on people's lawns with blonde hair, blue eyes or brown hair. You know what I mean? Green yeah. eyes, whatever. They they switch up the painting. Um, but occasionally you will still see those vintage blackface characters um, of the faithful groomsman, Jocko Graves. Mm. So. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Um, there's also a book about this that was written in 1963, um, called Jocko, A Legend of the American Revolution, um, which again comes from that, that moment of Southern storytelling to kind of reframe experiences. And it's like the Jocko story is a story that we've heard in many different ways because what it is is saying, well, some slaves had it good. You know, some slaves were treated nice and some some slaves were really loyal and they were right. they were treated nicely. They even got statues made of them. Or did you just make a racist statue because you didn't feel any kind of way about it? Right. And the 13-year-old boy died and his name was Jocko and you're tying it to this character and now in 2022 you have it in your lawn and now in 2023 we're talking about it on a podcast you mm -hmm. know is that maybe what's happening i encourage you all to kind of investigate um what you see 
a little bit further because I could have just driven or driven past that and just let it slip my mind. But from this, I kind of got a little bit more of knowledge of what it might have been like in the midst of Jim Crow when stories were being pushed out and retellings were being told and people's real life stories were being manufactured into stories to kind of guide um, respectability or subservientness or whatever the goal was for Black people in that story. And it turns into this racist lawn character next to a gnome, next to a, a light up deer. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a lot to take in. So I encourage everyone to look up The Lawn Jockey, Jocko Graves. Um, the story, personally, just from seeing historians kind of debate about this, sounds like BS um, all around. And I don't think that there is a way to talk about the sports or honestly the equestrian lifestyle if you just want to put it all around without bringing up the amount of racism and the amount of labor by enslaved people in that and how black people were integral to the development of the industry and how they've been completely left out yeah so i mean that's i was thinking about you know, the black face of it, right? Um, we know that, at least for us, um, we know that it's wrong. We know that it is um, historically from a place of um, a way to demean the uh, the culture, the, our people. For those listening who aren't familiar, for whatever reason, if you're not familiar with blackface and why it's a problem. Um, <laughs> so... This goes back to the early 1800s um, when the first menstrual shows were performed um, in New York. These are by white performers with blackened faces. Um, They used burnt cork or shoe polish to paint their faces. They wore tattered clothing who, um, and they also imitated and mimicked enslaved Africans on Southern plantations. These performances were characterized by Blacks. um, These performances characterized Blacks as lazy, ignorant, superstitious, hypersexual, and prone to thievery and cowardice. Thomas Dartmouth Rice, known as the father of minstrel um of minstrel minstrelsy known as the father of minstrelsy developed the first popularly um known blackface character Jim Crow in 1830 by 1845 the popularity of the minstrel show had spawned an entertainment sub industry manufacturing songs and sheet music makeup costumes as well as ready set as well as a ready set of stereotypes upon which to build new performances. So these are all depicting Black people awfully, right? And so for that mm-hmm. to go from the show, which you know we know to be a really um, poor representation of who we actually are, to then be sort of, um, I don't know, memorialized in a sense in a statue to have, you know, blackface there, or even the dolls, the, um, like the little, uh, toys, like things like that. You know, there are other ways that are depicted where we talked about birth of a nation, um, in film. And I mean, these are like permanent mm-hmm. <laughs> things, but it's not mm-hmm. that it should be a race. It's just more so understand the history behind it. Um, and why it has continued to sort of penetrate our society and where, where we're at now because of, um, the way that people want to hold on to those things and not really like honor the people that, you know, it's frankly just offending. Um, we're not lazy. Like how are, how are we going to build a country? And then you're going to tell us that we're lazy. You know what I mean? Like, how does that compute? (laughs) It's not working for me. The map isn't mapping for me. No, it's also, it's, it's not only just permanent, but the thing that really gets me and it really stands out with the lawn jockey is that, and also with the Mammy character, Mm -hmm. it's instructional. It is from a white, a racist white lens to say, Black people, if you want to be immortalized, you know, in a statue, be like Jocko. Be just like Jocko. Our president 
loved Jocko. He loved him so much that he abandoned him and let him freeze to death. And he was so good that we made him a statue that we were putting all over the lawns. And allegedly it's helping you through the Underground Railroad, which now we're kind of okay with. These are lies. <laughs> like These are lies. And they're instructions to keep people afraid. You know, yeah. afraid of, of bucking against a system and bucking terrible choice of words. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it sounds it like is, their attempt to, yeah, to justify and to, um, you know, no, it's OK. Like, right. you know, but there's representation or, you know, like just a mm-hmm. really, really um, awful way to try and uh, make it to gaslight, I think, right? Like, or, you know, to kind of change the perception, change the, um, to change your perception of what reality is and to make you question um, what you're actually seeing or what you're actually experiencing. Like, don't gaslight us into thinking that blackface is okay and blackface on a statue is okay. And because this enslaved kid was loved so much that, you know, uh, it's a jockey and, the way that he died was okay because look, right. we love him. Noble. No, no, right. right. Mm. And, and this is all also, I don't know if I even said this at the beginning of talking about the lawn jockey, but it's not even to hold a lantern. That's not the purpose of the statue. The statue is to make a post where you tie your horse and outside mm. cute. They're like, this will be cute. Like what? Mm. It could just be a vertical post and call it a day, but it had to be all this extra in order to do all the other things that it, that racism needs it to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And just like you said, like with all the blackface and salt and pepper shakers have blackface, like it was just permeating and that was entertainment. Um, My aunt uh, who passed away, she was a big, she was big on history, African-American history, Um, And she developed kind of an appreciation, I think, for some of the blackface depictions. It's hard for me to talk about because it's intricate and she's dead. So I can't ask her her exact thoughts. But she had pictures of um, Pickaninnies, the children with the uh, uh, bows and the um, big red lips and things like that. She had art that depicted that in her home. And I always used to be afraid of it. And she would talk to me. She was like, you know, this is not okay because Mm -hmm. white people did this. But this is also sometimes the only way that Black people got to see themselves Mm -hmm. in art, you know? And so she was kind of just explaining to me that some of this will sting, but this was also a lot of how we were represented. And so it's important for me to have this and not... Mm -hmm someone else you know that that is going to have this in a different way um yeah and so i kind of have been obviously our lens is going to be different um i didn't i wasn't born in the 50s so i wasn't that close to seeing that kind of imagery more popularized but um having a a relationship with blackface in whatever way it is um it's a developing thing for me because i don't I don't want to erase the, our history, because, even though I know that it's bad. I think contextually, I also understand it as all we had, which really sucks. Like, it really, really sucks that that mm-hmm. is all that people got to see. It's it's complicated here. Especially complicated. when we, we've uh, briefly mentioned, I believe, internalized racism. Maybe it's not been on the podcast, but maybe we've had you know, Mm -hmm. other conversations about internalized racism. And that can be, oh, this is how, you know, blackface was portrayed because they were portraying black people. And that's how we are. No, that's not Mm -hmm. how we are, you know? And so then if you then project that onto other people and um, that look like us and you treat them in a way where it's like, oh, well, it's like they're coming from like, well, I'm the okay one. Like I'm not you guys. That's mm-hmm. all, you know? And mm-hmm. so that sort of internalized racism, um, that's how that continues. That's how that's perpetuated through um, those sorts of um, blackface, whether it's the people in film or um, whatever to, you know, the little trinket that you pick up at the store, like, Mm-hmm. that's how that continues something yeah. you mentioned about your aunt um 
and you know how she had some of those items and the art in her house um there a friend of mine his brother was collecting these pieces of the blackface pieces and i remember going into one of the antique stores locally um i mean tons and tons of stuff in there it was very old and um they had some of the little Mamie characters um little like tiny little ones like mm-hmm. uh, statues based or whatever um in there and so i sent him a picture like hey like this is here um because the intention of that um the collection is to have a museum of like this doesn't need to be sold but these are the items of blackface that have been um distributed previously um to preserve that of like listen this wasn't great like and we're not going to change the narrative and make it seem like this is okay um but I thought it was interesting in the same way that your aunt, your aunt um, approached it of, well, we have to see it and we have to know that it existed because otherwise we don't know. Um, right. Otherwise we have us not knowing about the black influence on the Kentucky Derby, you know? Um, right. You know, you erase it or you uh, redirect the narrative and then it's like, who knows? And then you have another, now we know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. It's a, it's so. such a weird, it's such a weird experience to look at things so logically because mm-hmm. we can completely understand the context and everything. And then we have to also take into account our emotions to that. Mm-hmm. And that's where the complication comes in. But I also kind of, I don't have a collection, but I thrift enough thrifting is one of my passions mm-hmm. and when i see certain items that are racist and from a time um i sometimes will bring them home like i have this album uh it, i believe the artist is al jolson he was a white man who had a little bit of vibrato so he's saying the black face involved bill of course it's giving um, and bobby it's like caldwell a, just kidding <laughs> it's giving bobby caldwell um but he you know was a famous black uh blackface singer entertainer and i have this like double disc like mint condition lp that was so popular when it came out um and i had to get it because i was like who else would be buying this and why would they buy it mm-hmm. you know what i mean and like yeah. these items personally i think that if you do see those items out i think if you're black get them i wish that white people would stop selling them for mm-hmm. hundreds of dollars on facebook marketplace like why are you trying to profit off, profit off of this yeah but i also think if you're not comfortable with keeping it in your home for whatever reason or being part of that internal private storytelling within black circles um there are also african-american history museums that would love to have these products or to have these items for their exhibits um and even their grassroots organizations that will have a display and it does we need to have our history Captain, and we need the truth to be told or else we run into, like you said, a Jocko Graves retelling of some story that turns into a different moral, a coded moral thing that like black people are supposed to learn. And it's like, this is not, not, we can't trust these stories from these people. They're not, they're not reliable narrators. So Mm. it's a, anyway yeah it's a lot i have a lot of emotions about it Um, as you should and it's okay like the emotion stems from a place of um at least for me it would be like disappointment and like heavy sigh like come on yeah like it just it's 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 jarring every time there's always something we're always learning something and oh my god the um it can be painful um Mm -hmm. it really can be a painful experience it is. And just the exp- learning about all of this and thinking about all these concepts came from me driving to meet a friend at a bar. So when people are like, why does everything have to be about race? I'm like, you tell me. Because it is. I was trying to go have fun. <laughs> I yeah. was trying to have fun. It, and now it I gotta already do is. This. It is. It, I'll uh, tell a, a brief story about an experience that my uh, general manager and I had at um, a restaurant recently. So so we're out doing sales calls, visiting clients, and it's like, okay, let's grab lunch before um, we, you know, go back to the hotel. 
So he's like, oh, okay, like I want to take you to this place. It's it's awesome. I take my family here all the time. Like it's really, it's a solid breakfast place. So we go. And the second that I walked in, it just, it was a feeling. And we know that feeling. Mm-hmm. People, if they don't they ever have experienced it, they don't know what the feeling is. But it's a feeling of you you walking to a place and all eyes are on you. And it's not mm-hmm. that you're doing anything, you're just existing, but eyes are on you. And mm-hmm. um, the place isn't very busy. It's like kind of one of those breakfast lunch places are probably open from six to like two. And so, um, I don't know, it's what, 1230 or something. And um, so we sit down, they're not very busy. It's like a Wednesday. Um, and I'm like, this doesn't feel right. So he goes to the restroom. I'm still sitting at the table waiting for anyone to greet us of the, you know, the staff that's around that was, you know, a plenty to be able to um, offer a beverage or like bring a menu, anything. And um, that doesn't happen. So he comes back and then I'm like, okay, well, I'll go to the restroom. I go to the restroom. I come back and miraculously there are menus and waters. I was like, wow, look at that. And so um, (laughs) then I noticed that the server that was um, assisting us had on this uh, Trump hat. I was like, this is weird to have like a Trump hat in in your establishment. You know what I mean? Like at work, like sure you can wear it, but at work seemed weird to me. Yeah. Um, is that your flair? Your Make America Great right. Again is your flair? Okay. It turns out that's part of their uniform. Ah! Yeah. yeah, it's part of the uniform because I saw it. So it was like Trump 2020 and then, um, and not the typical MAGA hat, but it, you know, it looked a little different, but it still said Trump 2020. And then like on the side um, uh, below it was the name of the restaurant. I was like, oh, this is part of your uniform. Wow. And oh so my God. Believe what you're gonna believe, like or support whatever, but that still seemed bizarre to me in your establishment. Anyway, and I had mentioned to this to my general manager, I was like, it's weird that he has that hat on. And at first, um, he was like, Oh, ah, forget it. Like the food's good, like it's you know, whatever. Um and so I was like, yeah, but that that's weird. And then I was like, oh, and then I had pointed out like, oh, it's actually part of the uniform. And so then um, anyway, time goes on and we're just chatting about work, like whatever. Um, he's like, yeah, you know, so-and-so has been here pointing out, you know, some of the people in the restaurant and um, he's, you know, been there so many times. And so <clears throat> we're getting ready to leave. Um, actually, no. So um he had a coffee. I had water. My water was clearly like half full if that. Um, but the server only offered to refill my GM's coffee and not offer to refill my water and, or just do it, you know? Um, and I, I mean, I note that cause I'm like, just what, like, can I get a refill? You know, like I shouldn't have to ask. I just, it's, it's, it might be small, but it's still a thing. Right. And amongst the feeling that was already established from when he, we had, walked into the place. So then, um, we get the check. Um, I had asked for a box, um, to take, you know, something, um, to go server never gets it. And he's just off like frolicking, you know, over on the side. And again, this is not a busy restaurant. So then, um, my GM waves down one of the other servers, um, like, Hey, can we get a box? And then she like looks at us and was like, yeah, like it it was like the most a blatant like why are you bothering me kind of yeah and um she grabs a box she brings it back she might she basically like tossed it on the table you know like just so like flippant in the delivery of that so we leave and my gm was like what the fuck was that he was like that's the most fucked up thing i've ever you know what i mean and so then it just spawned into this conversation surrounding listen, this is an experience that we truly have. This is not like something that's made up. And I was already fragile that day. I had a tough morning, like really early and whatever. And so um, I kind of cried a little bit because I'm just like, just tired. Like, yes, I just want to eat. Yeah. And like (laughs) the conversation that we had um, before we even got to that restaurant was like, you know, sometimes I just feel like I'm a convenience for people and I don't really get seen for who I am. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, it was this whole thing. Mm -hmm. 
And so then for that to happen, it was like, you know, that was their power in the situation of um, not bringing the waters, not refilling the waters, not bringing Mm -hmm. us menus, um, not bringing the box, like throwing, you know what I mean? And just the, the intent, like you, you just can't explain it to truly like convey that feeling when all eyes are on you. Um, and for my GM as a white man, I know like, and he's, you know, chair of, um, a certain committee, um, that we Mm -hmm. have trying to be discreet um, of a certain committee that we have, um, and what a DI DEI committee at this organization. And, um, so he's part, he wants to be part of the cause, but I don't think he really grasps the, uh, the intensity or the understanding of like what we actually go through. He's just like, well, people are people, people should, people should be able to live. And I'm like, but do you actually understand what that experience is? And like, granted it sucked to have to go through it, but he now has an, a better understanding from experience yeah. of what it can be like for us. And it's not like it's that it's like that everywhere, but it happens often where you just it happens know. so often. Yeah. You just know yeah. that feeling, you know, the, the looks, you know, the energy that has surrounded mm-hmm. you and the eyes that are on you and you were literally doing nothing. Um, yeah. and you, I don't know, I kind of move with that pressure, um, of like not wanting to accidentally do something. You know, one of my biggest, uh, concerns is, is mm. ever leaving a store and the buzzer go off. Oh. Oh my God. That no, is... please. I tip through I tiptoe through the sensor with my bag, like open mm-hmm. my receipt in hand. Yeah. I don't want any any confusion no about confusion. why this buzzer may be going off. I yeah. check out with a person. So I have a witness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. all these things. Yeah. And I just want to go to the store and get out just like everyone else, but it's different for us. It is different. We are not trying to steal anything. Don't get me wrong. I mean, are people trying to yes, even if it's accidents? Like, yeah, but it's like, yeah, it's not gonna be us. Like like uh, you and I, us, you know what I mean? Like right. it's not like there are so many people who do, but I'm not I'm not doing I promise, you know what I mean? Like, and it's such a weird feeling. Um I am especially annoying. not about to do it. Right. Because spe- it's going to be harder for me to make it out of this misunderstanding than yeah. somebody else. Yeah. You know, it's it's everywhere. Yeah. Damn, that yeah. restaurant's uniform was Trump. And then it's also like everybody who supports Trump. And again, believe what you want. I don't right. care. It's good. And wear the shirt so I know not to come around you. Mm-hmm. But there is a single circle Venn diagram of... Trump support and racism. And I know that racism feels like the R word for people that they don't want to hold on to. Just like the people who have the Jocko character on their lawn don't want to say they're racist because they have a black daughter-in-law and mixed babies. But like, that's racist as fuck. Mm-hmm. And it's in the same, it's in the same circle and you can't separate the two and you have to tell me why, because I'm here to eat breakfast. So it's not for me to have to dig into. You have right. to tell me why that is. Mm-hmm. Well, my GM's not taking his family there anymore. He was going on a tirade, um, which I thought was uh, not kind of funny, only because I'm like, he is fired up. You know how many people he called after that? He was right. like about to turn into, um, I say, uh, Vegas so and so because he spent like 30 years in Vegas, like running poker rooms or whatever, and um, working with some sketchy people, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm like. He he knows somebody who knows somebody. <laughs> hey, but I mean, also like that is yeah. the first time it happens. I know it's a driving experience. Like my husband is white and he knows the difference between service with he and his family and then with me and him. Like mm-hmm. we went out for to our favorite restaurant. It's walkable and everything, but it was for my best friend's birthday, a black woman. And I had my other best friend there, another black woman. So it's me, two black women and my husband. And the way we got served at our favorite restaurant, completely different. Yeah. And it's like, I, I know that's going to happen because we have 75% black people, but the, you know, the conversation did go on after because it's like, why was it like this? It's like, cause we're black. And that's a dumb reason, but that's yeah. the reason. Absolutely. 
so the way that that story made me feel hearing about your restaurant experience is kind of what I imagine the experience of going to the Kentucky Derby would be or going to these Kentucky Derby events. And it kind of reminds me of when I first learned about the Kentucky Derby. Again, it was through the beer industry. So these are people that I worked with all the time. Oh, come on, Jonathan, we're having mint juleps. We're going to do this, then the third. And it was like, I couldn't explain to you how excluded I am from this because you don't see why. I should be, but there are so many people at that event who do not want me there, even though this is an event that was only made possible by people like me. And popularized by people like me. Mm. Speaking of that, let's do our last question and get out of here. Um, I want to know what sport would you like to see Black players or Black leagues like emerge and like Maybe not dominate, but you know how we do. But like, <laughs> what yeah. sport would you love to to get into because of Black people taking part in, in it? That's a tough question. Um, because I associate the things that we already do with what we do well. You know, if you like soccer um, mm-hmm. and football, like I can, we can they can have that back. <laughs> yeah. F- football, have the concussion and all you want. Y'all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, basketball is great. Like baseball. Um, we've got a presence there, but maybe not as much. So maybe, maybe I would say that, um, something like lacrosse. You know, my sister played lacrosse briefly growing up. Um, mm-hmm. see a whole lot of that in general. I feel like, you know, that's not a super popular sport. um, I mean, track and field, you know, that's dominated for sure. But um, I don't know that I have one where I'm like, no, I wish I could play or like whatever, because this at least the sports that I play that I'm interested in, like we tennis, softball, um, like there there is presence, you know, Um, and I'm happy, which is great. Yeah, which is great and hasn't always been true, especially with tennis and like golf and like country club sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The one I'm thinking of immediately um, is fencing. I always get excited in movies and TV when I see a black fencer and I'm like, I know nothing of the sport. It's so hoity-toity. I know that there's so much exclusion, but I would love to see black people in that sport, you know, and like, that would be cute. That would be cool. Yeah. I didn't think and about watch. that one. We'll, we'll Google it once and be like, here's this black league taking over. But mm-hmm. like, I don't see it. It has to come to me. And once it comes to me, <laughs> then I'll be satisfied with the amount of blackness popularity and, with it. Yeah. and popularity. Yeah. 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 But you got to make it through a few barriers here because I don't even watch basketball. So my algorithm uh, then... <laughs> you, you don't know, sport much, though. Like I don't sport at all. <laughs> yeah, but so... I... I Love. That's a big barrier to break through. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I love the idea. Yeah. <laughs> and I really I would really love to see I'd really love to see black fencers. And I and now I want to see black jockeys. So I'm going to I'm going to watch from afar from my TV screen, um but I think I'd like to have some sort of Kentucky Derby relationship forming cuz I want it reclaimed so bad. And this upcoming Kentucky Derby is on the 6th of May. So everyone, you know, if you feel so inclined to tune in and check it out, I mean, maybe we should. Why not? Um, yeah, we might as well. Drink just, julep. Yeah, we might as well just yeah. give it a go. All right, Donna, it's time for Now, now You know. know. In the same vein of people who are not given credit where credit is due. My Now You Know is about the lesser known history of African-American cowboys. Few images embody the spirit of the American West, as well as the trailblazing, sharpshooting, horseback riding cowboy of American lore. And though African-American cowboys don't play a part in the popular narrative, historians estimate that one in four cowboys were Black. The cowboy life came into its own in Texas, which had been the cattle country since it was colonized by Spain in the 1500s, but cattle farming did not become the bountiful economic and cultural phenomenon recognized today until the late 1800s when millions of cattle grazed in when when millions of cattle grazed in Texas. White Americans seeking cheap land and sometimes evading debt in the United States began moving 
to the Spanish and later Mexican territory of Texas during the first half of the 19th century. Though the Mexican government opposed slavery, Americans bought slaves with them, brought slaves with them as they settled the frontier and established cotton farms and cattle ranches. By 1825, slaves encountered uh, slaves accounted for nearly 25% of the Texas settler population. By 1860, 15 years after it became part of the Union, that number had risen to over 30%. That year, census reported 182,566 slaves living in Texas. As an increasingly significant new slave state, Texas joined the Confederacy in 1861. Though the Civil War had hardly reached Texas soil, many white Texans took up arms to fight alongside their brethren in the East. While Texas ranchers fought in the war, they depended on their slaves to maintain their land and cattle herds. In doing so, the slaves developed the, uh, the skills of cattle tending, breaking horses, pulling calves out of mud, and releasing long cords caught in the brush, to name a few, that would render them invaluable to the Texas cattle industry in the post-war era. Um, post-war era. But with a combination of in uh, with a combination of a lack of effective containment, barbed wire was not yet invented, and too few cow hands, the cattle population ran wild. Ranchers returning from the war discovered that their herds were lost or out of control. They tried to round up the cattle and rebuild their herds with slave labor, but eventually the Emancipation Proclamation left them without the free workers on on which they were so dependent. Desperate for help riding, uh, rounding up maverick cattle, ranchers were compelled to hire now free, skilled African-Americans as paid cowhands. Right after the Civil War, uh, being a cowboy was one of the few jobs open to men of color who wanted to not serve as an elevator operator, as elevator operators or delivery boys or other similar occupations, says William Lauren Katz, a scholar of African-American history and the author of 40 books on the topic, including the Black West. Free Blacks skilled, um, skilled in herding cattle found themselves in an even greater demand when ranchers began selling their livestock in northern states, where beef was nearly 10 times more valuable than it was in cattle inundated Texas. The lack of significant railroads in more um, and the state meant that enormous herds of cattle needed to be physically moved to shipping points in Kansas, Colorado, and Missouri. Routing, uh, rounding up herds on horseback, cowboys traversed unforgiving trails, fought with harsh environmental conditions, and attacks from Native Americans defending their lands. African-American cowboys faced discrimination in the towns they passed through. They were barred from eating at certain restaurants or staying in certain hotels, for example, but within their crews, they found respect and a level of equality unknown to other African-Americans of the era. I mean, how beautiful is that, right? Like they found camaraderie. They really had, you know, that community of, um, herding cattle and, um, you know, traveling together. And granted, of course, there's there's going to be that existence of, you know, some hardships to overcome, but they did it. And um, they really were, you know, kind of that representation of, you know, cowboy um, of the era. And we're not really seeing that now like we used to. No. And I, I love the fact that there were black cowboys that kind of created this culture that has of course become so anti-black um right. and it's interesting how this continues to happen um but as we learn more and more of the history i mean there are at least 40 books right like about it yeah um and we get to see things like The Harder They Fall, mm -hmm. um, which talks about real historic uh, black cowboys in a fictionalized story. But their stories are going to continue to be told. I can't wait to see 20 years from now how much more is uncovered and how many more stories are told. Because mm -hmm. it's um, it's 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 deep. It's so yeah. deep. We built this country for real. And even the term cowboy has like some racist origins right mm -hmm. so originally mm -hmm. white cowboys were called cow hands and african americans mm -hmm. were pejoratively referred to as cowboys so african american mm -hmm. men being called boy regardless of their age stems from slave the enslavement period and um the plantation era in the south so just you know calling someone a boy it's it's you're basically calling them the n-word you know um and so mm -hmm. it has that that connotation to it or the extra layer. Um, and so that's why they were called cowboys. And so, you know, at this point, 
everyone's called a cowboy, you know, in that sense, or it's, you know, very, uh, more, definitely more popular than cow hand. I, I would argue that cow hand is not being used, um, no. or outside of like the actual ranch or something, but yeah, it's, what a history that has been, um, changed. And, um, you know, that narrative is, is similarly to what we talked about in the main piece about, uh, the Kentucky Derby, you know, the, the erasure of black influence. And, uh, we're here to, you know, we got some, uh, magic marker and we're yes. <laughs> <laughs> uncovering the history. Absolutely. Well, Donna, thank you so much for recording this morning. Um, this has been a lot of great conversation, a lot to dig into. I hope that the listeners also enjoyed this um, and, you know, look around and then question and a little bit of research. I bet you it'll lead you somewhere black. <laughs> I bet. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan. Right. Actually, thank you. Morning's not so bad. I don't know. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And, and now, now you know. know of course you guys we will drop all of the links to the sources and resources that we have used for the production of this episode in the show notes so be sure to check that out for the content of the episode but also for our now you know segment We appreciate y'all for joining us each and every month. If you think that more people can benefit from this conversation, please be sure to share the podcast with a friend or family member. Also, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to Now We Know wherever you listen. You can find me on Instagram at Donna Janine, or if you want to drop us a note, any feedback or maybe suggestions on people that you'd like us to cover, send us an email at realrelatablepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.